0: The British Elections 2021, analysis with Dr. Luke Blacksell and Mr. Taim Salah. Hello, I'm Dr. Luke Blacksell of Hartford College, University of Oxford, and I'm joined with me by my learned friend and associate, Mr. Taim Tala, of the Queen's College University of Cambridge. We're going to discuss the English, Welsh and Scottish elections that are going to be taking place on Thursday, the 6th of May, 2021. These have been dubbed a key electoral test for the respective party leaders and feature a very large round of English local elections, the London Morality and the London Assembly, the Scottish Parliament elections, the Welsh Assembly elections and also a key by-election in the constituency of Hartlepool. We're going to go through each of these elections and give our predictions, our thoughts and analysis for what is likely to happen on the big day. So turning first to Scotland, this is probably where the most media analysis has been concentrated. So in Scotland, in 2007, the SMP gained... um, not an overall majority, but became the largest party, gained an overall majority in 2011, three years before that historic referendum, Uh, slipped down somewhat in 2016 to lose their overall majority, and are looking in this election in 2021 to um, hopefully gain either an overall majority themselves outright, or if not that, in coalition with other parties to push the case for an independence referendum. And so, Mr. Salah, how do you think that the Scottish elections are
1: likely to go? Um, well, f- well, firstly, good evening, Dr. Laxell. It's um, good to speak to you. Um, good evening. Yeah, I think that I think that, um, I think that um, what what makes um, this, you know, this particular aspect of the electoral arena that we're discussing tonight, um, both you know Scotland as opposed to the rest of the country, um, what makes Scotland so important here is that you know, far beyond any of the other things that we'll be talking about, where, as we will go to discuss in the case of the council elections, you know, so much of the importance that the media puts on it is about, you know, um, uh, who's up and who's down and how, how do things look for the, for the major parties and um, what's being decided uh, on Thursday in Scotland uh, concerns nothing less than the future existence of the United Kingdom. So that's, of course, you know what makes these particular elections stand out has been much the most important, I think, of of anything that's happening in the UK this week. Um, as for the probable outcome, the polls um, and the sort of media speculation around them are, I think, a little bit a little bit harder than usual to uh, completely kind of deduce a, a precise prediction from, if only because the voting system of the Scottish Parliament. Um, it, you know makes it even harder than, than than it normally is to sort of deduce hard seat projections from polling numbers and I suppose we should just very quickly say for the benefit of our listeners that um, uh, uh, that the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly which is now called the Welsh the Welsh Senate unlike um, Elections to the House of Commons uses it a distinct, proportional uh, 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 system of electoral representation, known as the alterna- known as the additional member system, whereby there are two types of MP sitting in uh, the legislature. You have, on the one hand, those who are elected in the familiar first-past-the-post way by individual constituencies. And then you have, uh, in addition to those, so-called top-up seats or list seats, which are MPs elect- elected from a party list, um, uh, f- wherein voters get the chance just to vote for a single party, which presents a single list of candidates, and the, uh, according to a certain formula, um, seats are apportioned to uh, 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 to uh, to the parties according to votes cast, and then. Um, Uh, uh, the appropriate number of MPs are are selected from from any given list. So because you have two votes um, and the opinion polls have to ask people, you know, how are you going to vote for your constituency and then how are you going to vote for the party list? It's even harder than usual to really kind of make sense of both sets of numbers and try to get a, a hard position out of them. That caveat notwithstanding, however, it does seem... Uh, Firstly, overwhelmingly undeniably clear that the Scottish National Party will be much the largest party uh, in in Hollywood, as they have been already for the past 14 years. In terms of the popular vote, um, for the constituency seats, their lead is, you know, anything up to 30 percentage points over the second place party, which will be either the Conservatives or Labour. Um, and even in the list seats, where it's a bit weaker due to the fragmentation of the nationalist vote, um, you know, on on the list seat votes, um, uh, even there, it's it's lead over either the Conservatives or Labour is likely to be something like twenty percentage points. Um, so, yeah, it seems there's of-
0: something quite strategic about um, the way in which um, some of the other pro independence parties have um, deployed seats on the list, but not in the constituencies. Like for example, right. yeah.
1: Alba. Yeah, so so Alba, um, which is obviously the newest party competing in these elections, um, right at this launch was sort of justified by its founder, Alex Salmon, the former SMP leader and first minister, was, was justified in precisely these technological terms, namely that with the SMP set to sweep the board, more or less, in the constituencies, um, voting SNP in the list, second vote seats, um, will be uh, uh, more or less a wasted vote, and therefore another pro-independence party should receive that second vote um, in order to maximize the um, the representation for separatists within the next Scottish Parliament. Um, Although Alba, due to the rather acrimonious and um, you know, dramatic circumstances of its foundation, um, uh, uh, you know, has attracted a lot of media attention. It's still very, very unclear whether it will get anywhere at all. Um, it may, at the absolute maximum, scrape by winning one list seat in one of the regions of Scotland. Um, I, w- I would, I would, uh, on, on the side of uh, on the side of minimizing their chances in that sense to be frank I don't think they're going to win anything I think that if they get three or four or even five percent of the vote which is probably the upper limit of what they're likely to get the uh, the most consequence that they' they're likely to have uh, ironically given their 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 you know professed uh, uh, objectives is to Not take enough seats to win themselves any, not take enough votes to win themselves any seats, but take enough votes in you know non-negligible quantities away from votes that would almost certainly have otherwise gone to either the Scottish National Party or the Scottish Green Party, which is also supportive of independence, and thereby um, in the crucial list seats, which will be the last to declare uh, when the count is underway uh, later this week. Um, you know, there will be these crucial last seats um, that will determine whether the s merely get 62 seats or something, 63 seats, just short of the 65 seats needed, or whether it will actually get into the higher 60s and therefore claim what Nicola Sturgeon will call an undeniable, unanswerable mandate uh, for a second referendum on Scotland's independence.
0: And this is really the kind of crucial prism which it is very easy from... Oxford and Cambridge and other places in England, uh, to view Scottish politics through this prism, that's simply of the independence prism. And while it may be very meaningful to some people in Scotland, you know, whether they, you know, whether the Unionists, whether the uh, Conservative and Unionist Party, uh, finish second or whether uh, Scottish Labour were able to pip them for second place. That's kind of internally significant within those two parties. The broader prism that this will obviously be looked at is as a potential prequel to IndyRef 2. And to me, the really crucial question here is claims about mandate. Clearly, if the Scottish National Party, given how emphasised Indy Rep 2 it has been, win an overall majority, having not secured an overall majority in 2016, then clearly they can claim that momentum is with them, even though some of the actual polling about independence has actually started to slide back again, arguably, even though the SNP look as though they're going to do quite well. But I think that the crucial point, um, really, it seems to me, is whether or not the an outcome where the um, separatists have a supermajority, that is to say SNP plus Green plus plus ALBA, um, has a mandate that can really hold water as far as the, I don't know, the national and international commentariat are concerned, or whether if the SNP do not achieve that, they won't be in such a strong position. And what's
1: your feeling on that point, Mr. Salah? Um, yes, I think I, I think you've, you've really sort of uh, uh, hit, hit the nail on the head in the sense that um, although, as we've said, the question of an overall SNP outright majority is absolutely in the balance, it now on the current polling, not just because of the you know the continuing strength and durability of the SNP's popularity in Scotland, but also um, much more neglected by the media the um, uh, a steady, if unspectacular improvements in the Scottish Green Party's polling for, for the list seats, which is where they tend to, to do fairly well in Hollywood elections, um, up from the 2016 tally of a little under 10, of something under 10%, now getting closer to the 10% mark. Those two factors, in my mind, make it virtually impossible for the unionists between themselves, i.e., the Tories, Labour, and the Dems, to get a, a majority to, to kind of forestall uh, a separatist SP slash green majority. Um, so it yes, seems so I, mean, uh, oh. so I was just gonna say that um, so so it seems that the people in Westminster who are gonna have to you know respond to whatever Nicholas Surgeon says after this week's elections, um, uh, we will have to focus at the very least on, on, on that outcome of a continuing s slash Green majority. Um, now, it, it seems to me in that case that, um, of course, I think everyone on all sides of the argument really understands, rhetoric notwithstanding, that uh, a decision on a second independence referendum doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be made by anyone next week. Um, the Conservatives or the British government have already made excuse to sort of postpone the question by a little while, uh, namely that we are still in the middle of a of a, of a pandemic emergency, um, and this is not the time to reopen constitutional questions of um, you know first class importance and divisiveness, um, and at the very least one should wait you know until twenty twenty two or something like that for things to settle down, um, and actually although. Uh, she's not prone to emphasise this part of her message. I suspect that Nicola Sturgeon, you know, would also be willing to espouse something like that, because although she's done very well out of the coronavirus pandemic, um, in, in political and personal popularity terms, um, you know, she is aware that, uh, uh, you know, that, that being seen to uh, uh, have handled the, the coronavirus crisis competently, uh, and without too much overt political point scoring, you know, is, is too important to her brand to, uh, you know, squander it away in making, um, you know, bombastic claims for in the media or snap referendum. So I think that uh, uh, so long as the SP don't completely sweep the board on Thursday, um, there will be enough breathing space of maybe six months or a year whereby. Uh, uh, the immediate sort of momentum that the SP would have built up or may have built up in this election can, can be allowed to sort of subside a little um, where, you know, it, it should be fairly easy if the British government chooses to begin a conversation with the Scottish government about... You know, the the technicalities or the terms of holding a referendum, just like the discussions that David Cameron and Alex Salmond had before the 2014 referendum. Those sorts of talks can be made to last a fairly long time. And as you said, Dr. Baxall, a few minutes ago, uh, you know, even since uh, the start of 2021, um, polling has shown uh, a fairly marked, noticeable a uh, uh, decline in the yes share of the vote window in any hypothetical uh, net, uh, second independence referendum. Um, it, it seems to me that when Nicola Sturgeon isn't on the television every day giving coronavirus briefings, given how personally popular she is and how important that personal brand is to the fortunes of the SNP and the S and the S camp, um, I think that it, you know it may be you know, you know, maybe far more possible for Westminster and unionists to kind of get that extra room for political maneuvering than than the headline results from this week's elections might suggest.
0: Yes, I mean, it seems that, interestingly, um, Nicola Sturgeon's uh, kind of ratings, which on some level you might have expected might have taken a bit of a hit from the um, you know, misleading parliament kind of Alex Salmond um, sort of um, sexual uh, scandal uh, issues, that um, her own ratings and the SNP's own fortunes, which are obviously very tied with that, uh, seem to be doing rather better presently than independence. I think that um, because independent support seemed to be rising into the high 50s, Um, at the end of 2020 and the SNP were also doing very well in the polls, that this was really what very much alarmed unionists. There has, I think, been a slight divergence between those two things as we've come in the middle of 2021, where it looks like the SNP are going to still do very well, but at the same time, the polls creeping up. Uh, for um, against 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 separatism. And so it may be that even if the SNP are returned with this margin, uh, you know, with an overall majority even it will be a little bit more difficult if those opinion polls continue to come out showing a reasonably clear majority, a thin majority, let's say, opposed uh, to push that envelope. Let's move on to Wales now. Um, And um, we have here, I suppose, generally speaking, Welsh Assembly elections have not been as interesting as Scottish Parliament elections, simply because we have not seen the absolute uh, turning of the political tables in Wales that we have really seen um, in Scotland, obviously since the creation of these devolved assemblies, that the Welsh, Welsh Assembly politics has been a mixture between a Labour majority administration or a Labour minority administration or with certain elements of coalition. That has simply been what Welsh Assembly politics um, has been like. And um, at the moment, uh, that situation appears to be similar, that, w- that um, Wales have a, a minority um, uh, local, uh, a minority Labour administration with a, with a relatively popular first minister, Uh, As well, Mm -hmm. it must be said, but it looks as though they're likely to lose ground in uh, these Welsh Assembly elections, uh, partly due to a resurgence of Welsh conservatism, which we have been seeing really quite remarkably, I think, since Theresa May. Wales, of course, Mm -hmm. much more like England, much more like provincial England, even in its attitudes to Brexit. Uh, strong performances for UKIP prior to the um, uh, uh, the Brexit referendum, and one way it seems that the consequent decline of UKIP, obviously having achieved Brexit, will benefit the Conservatives, is the unwinding of some of that Welsh UKIP support, some of which will go maybe to the new abolish the Welsh Assembly Party, led by um, uh, that uh, sort of veteran political campaigner, Mark Reckless, but much of which will then go to the Conservatives. And so it looks as though the Conservatives will be making some gains at the expense of Labour in this election.
1: Precisely. So whereas in, in Welsh Assembly elections, ever since the first one was held in nineteen ninety nine, Plaid Cymru does tend to do a bit better in them than in, than in Westminster elections. Partly because um, of the sort of Welsh centric focus of these elections in, in, inherent to, to um, you know the premise of their existence, and also I think partly perhaps the um, the proportional system used in uh, in, in devolved elections in Wales, just like in Scotland, um, makes it easier for the for plight to come to set themselves up as the, you know, the uh, uh, leading opposition to Welsh hegemony in, in Wales, or to, to Labour hegemony in Wales. Um, uh, and therefore, you know, they, they've sort of had limited success in making Welsh assembly politics, you know, primarily a story of a Labour government versus a Plaid opposition. As you say, Dr Blacksell, Um, uh, uh, insofar as Plaid Cymru was having any success in the long term and kind of making that the main polarity of Welsh politics, the resurgence of the Welsh Conservatives in the last three or four years um, has uh, uh, rather rather stymied that. The polls make it quite clear that the Conservatives are going to Probably break ahead in terms of the popular vote, and therefore also in terms of seats, um, break ahead from Plaid Cymru to become clearly the main challenger to Labour. Labour will fall back; it will not be able to, to rely on the one or two Lib Dem uh, assembly members um, uh, that it has used in the past to kind of get over the line to to you know an outright majority uh, of seats. So you will have. You know, something, a situation where if, even if Labour is, you know, unambiguously the largest party of, of the three, of the three major parties, there will be enough, So, we should, shall we say, parity between Labour, the Conservatives and Plaid Cymru that if there is to be any kind of government formed, it will have to be, um, you know, a combination of two of those three parties and non, no combination. Um, seems especially palatable. On paper, in in straight up ideological terms, one would have thought that Labour-Plied Cymru would be the least ideologically jarring of those possible permutations. Um, But as I say, given that the the Pride Cymru has had no choice as an electoral strategy but to kind of emphasise its hostility to Labour, that might be um, politically, for the party, faithful a rather difficult pill to swallow. But the broader point that you make about, about this sort of the sort the sophology of Wales and where Wales sits within British politics, I think that you made a minute ago is is quite right. That although there is a strong Welsh nationalist movement, um, uh, it is to a far greater extent than Scotland, sort of. Geographically geographically concentrated to a, a few select constituencies in Wales, in Western Wales, where the Welsh language is still predominantly spoken. So constituencies like Ceredigian uh, or Morn, uh uh and a few others that maybe amount to no more than maybe five or at the outside six out of Wales's 40 constituencies. And so the rest of Wales, particularly southeastern Wales, where, where much of the population lives, so Cardiff, Swansea, uh, uh, the old coal valleys of the Rhonda uh, and Ebbw Vale and so on, um, uh, they, obviously these are meant to be, you know, the, the heartlandest of heartland labour seats. Um, but also they, in terms of how they've moved in in electoral politics in recent years, they have moved roughly like their their compatriots in England. So Cardiff behaves roughly like, you know, uh, a provincial English city like Leeds, for instance, or Newcastle, uh, and someone like the Rhonda will behave roughly like uh, somewhere in South Yorkshire, let's say. Um, And so, although ironically, as you see, Mark Drakeford, the, the first minister of Wales, is indeed very popular, it is one of the side effects of coronavirus um, on on British politics is that because public health as a policy area is devolved to all four nations or to all three uh, nations, I should say, um, that have devolution, um, uh, uh, the you know the, the 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 task of dealing with the pandemic has put the devolved governments far more in the limelight. So as we said, Nicola Sturgeon, it's really kind of played to her strengths as a personally popular politician. But in the case of Wales, what it's done more than anything else is just given a new prominence to um, the Welsh government and the Welsh Assembly, you know, as uh, 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 sources of political power and authority in, you know, in the everyday life of Welsh people. Uh, It's the Welsh Assembly, the Welsh government that has been making these decisions about lockdown, about social distancing, about, you know, the number of people who can attend a funeral and so on, The, the everyday stuff that... Um, has sort of determined how everyone in this country has experienced the pandemic. Um, that's all been devolved. Um, so it'll be interesting. It's interesting to see whether uh, uh, turnout to the Welsh Assembly elections leaps up as a result, because they're normally very, you know, really quite low, almost on a par with local council elections. Um, so that would be one of the interesting things I think to look at, and you know, from it the seems
0: Welsh to thought. me though that um, even given uh, this point that you make about the Welsh Assembly seemingly more relevant in more people's lives, which has always been one of the challenges that Welsh Assembly politics and the advocates of greater expansion of the Welsh Assembly's powers ha- have faced. Even though the coronavirus has, in some respects, um, given I suppose you know a um, very much served that up on a platter, it seems that the likely result of the Welsh Assembly elections, and uh, the Labour Administration, despite the popularity of the First Minister, that falling backwards, and there being a potentially uneasy coalition or a minority Labour Administration, means that I do not think that the advocates of further powers, or transfer of further powers to the Welsh Assembly, will be in a particular position to capitalise on that sort of new relevance, seemingly, of the Welsh Assembly in in, everyone, in, um, in the Welsh people's lives. So uh, I think they may struggle to, to play that card if they were going to play it. Let's move now on to the Hartlepool by-election, which is, in many respects, I think the thing I'm most interested in from a sort of a purely cephalogical perspective. So to give our listeners some background, now Hartlepool uh, used to be the constituency of Peter, uh, Peter Mendelssohn. Um, it's mm-hmm. a constituency that has suffered uh, considerable um, economic decline. It is often described quite lazily as being you know, a Labour stronghold of the North. It is not an industrial or a manufacturing constituency um, in the same way as many others. And looking back over its history, it is only very rarely been an incredibly safe Labour seat. It was a very safe Labour seat you know in the late 19 you know in the late 1990s and in 2001 and it has always been a labor seat with the exception of uh, 1959 even if we go right back into its successor constituency mm. that the Hartlepools. and so yes. labor have usually managed to come out on top in hartlepool by relatively small margins historically um it's i suppose just being in a part of the country where the conservatives have traditionally done quite badly and in a sense, um, because Labour still managed to hold this seat, because there was a very, very strong Brexit Party intervention, over the candidacy of Richard Tice in 2019, that the Labour candidate was able to hold this on a pretty small minority of the vote. And so had that Brexit Party candidate either not intervened or been perhaps a less prominent figure than, um, than Richard Tice, it may have been the case that Hartlepool would have been another conservative gain. And so this is really from the perspective, I think, of Keir Starmer, really one of the worst kind of constituencies that you could possibly have had coming up in a by-election because it's got a lot of um, attention because it's a part of the red wall. But it's got um, a very large number of votes that were formally going to the Brexit party, which are probably going to go um majoritarily, to the Conservative Party and create a whole bunch of embarrassing headlines. Now, there was a poll that was just out today from Servation showing the Conservatives no less than 17 points ahead of Labour in Hartlepool, and 50% to Labour's 33%. Previous polls have been closer. And it was the case that the fieldwork of that poll, the Servation poll, was done before this recovery that Labour have had in the opinion polls recently nationally. A modest recovery, the government have had quite a lot of bad headlines about sleaze and so on. Labour have benefited to the tune of probably you know, a 3%, 4% swing, um, uh, something of that order. Um, but it doesn't look as though um, Hartlepool is a very promising prospect for Labour at the moment. I actually put um, uh, £50 pounds on uh, Labour today at six to one. Um, really very extreme odds offered there by the bookies when previously Labour had been about even uh, when the by-election was announced. So how do you see uh, this um, uh, by-election uh, vote going,
1: Mr Sala? Um, yeah, I, I share some of your uh, hesitation about completely buying into the um, you know, the, 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 the building up, the still building up media narrative around, around Hartlepool of course, you know it's it's never bad news from the point of of um, the party that's leading by seventeen points in the in, in, in any opinion poll to you know to get that kind of poll uh, coming out and, and saying I was so far ahead. But there are a couple of things I always sort of hesitate about. Firstly, as you said, the, the field work, uh, the fact that the, you know that that it seems as if the the world data behind this particular poll is a, is a little out of date. Um, but 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 you know even even setting that aside, um, there's still methodologically uh, a bit of a question mark over constituency opinion polls. Um, the last time they were really systematically kind of deployed in um, uh, uh, in um, uh, surveying British politics and British political opinion was in the run up to the 2015 election, um, when Lord Ashcroft. A uh, 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 sort of uh, subsidised, uh, an enormous rollout of an unprecedented rollout of constituency-specific polls for different kinds of marginal seats all over the country. Of course, you know all the opinion polls, both national and local, did pretty badly in 2015. But uh, whereas the national opinion polls have been forced by successive electoral tests to revise their um, their their methodologies, constituency polling. Hasn't had quite the same test since 2015, I would suggest, and so still a bit of a question mark about constituency polling, uh, gen- you know, as a, as a as a as a as a sort of as a species of opinion poll. Um, or also more than that, there's the you know the question of um, local organisation, and so much of this comes down to turnout. One expects in any given by election, barring quite exceptional circumstances, turnout will be fairly low. Um, one expects that turnout will not have been stimulated by uh, the presence of the pandemic. One expects, and one knows for certain, because some of the data about this has already been released, that um, uh, 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 an, an, an exceptionally high number or a high proportion of electors, you know, not just in Hartlepool, but, but throughout the country, um, have applied for postal votes, heeding government advice on on taking postal votes. Um, so, for example, I happened the other day to look at uh, the data for this in parts of Scotland, and you know, in Edinburgh, for instance, fully twenty five percent of the electoral register is now has a postal vote for this election. Um, if, you know, if that, if that proportion holds true across the country, that is, in a sense, you know, almost a transformative alteration of the, the precise dynamics of how these elections work. Firstly, because of turnout, as I said, um, uh, having a postal vote come to your house makes it far more likely that you you know, that you will exercise your votes. Turnout amongst postal voters is always for even the most obscure, um, uh, uninteresting elections. Always sort of high in a very stable way, fluctuating much less than in-person on-the-day polling. Um, so, so, uh, uh, so there's the question of you know whether whether the postal votes will sort of you know really uh, uh, sort of hit disproportionately hard if the rest of the electorate turns out to a much lesser extent. Um, and also, there's a the question of timing that uh, postal votes were issued. Um, uh, to their voters, uh, I believe, over a week ago now. Um, So there's this question of if people immediately filled in and returned their postal votes uh, a week ago before a lot of this stuff came out. Um, You know, once you send a postal vote off from the post, you can't ask for it back to change your mind. That's it. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty, plus also just the general thing in, in, in low in low turnout by elections and local elections of organisations that, um, you know, however much trouble the Labour Party is in in, in that part of the world, its organisation at the sort of bare bones ward uh, level is probably better in better nick than the Conservatives, probably better place to kind of do the the bare minimum and turning out a core vote, especially through postal votes so I, I i'm not gonna i don't- i'm not going predict that labor will win but I, I, I would predict that however um however uh, well uh, the Conservatives are doing in the national opinion polls um when translating that to Hartlepool to make a prediction, perhaps give labour a bit more of a step up to Take these factors into account.
0: Right yes, I think I would be certainly very surprised if the Conservatives uh, triumph in Hartlepool by seventeen points. I mean that that, yeah. that seems that seems very un- in, To be honest, for any party uh, to um triumph in Hartlepool by seventeen points by historical standards is is, mm. is relatively unusual, really. Um, I think though one other thing to say about Hartlepool is it is even remarkable. I suppose that we're having a conversation in such terms. We're talking about the government uh, gaining a seat in a by-election, a government that has been in power for 11 years, uh, gaining a seat uh, in a by-election, and not due to some exceptional circumstances with that by-election to do with the candidates, to do with the old candidate, to do with a particular political issue, uh, which is you know a really hot button at the moment. Not really due to that. Yes, there is the context of the pandemic that that's certainly true but that's been around now for for more than a year and yet we're in a position where um, it looks as though despite the fact that the, the Labour Party overall is closer to the Conservatives in the national opinion poll than Jeremy Corbyn was to Boris Johnson in 2019, uh, that in this particular type of constituency, with a 70% um, vote share for leaving the European Union in that referendum, um, uh, Mm. that that, that the government is looking as though it might win a by-election. And I think that there are a couple of things about this, really. I mean, the first is that, generally speaking, by-elections are usually as traditionally, usually bad for governments, um, usually government supporters less motivated to vote than opposition supporters, the opposition put more resources into the campaign, generally government's popularity falls in the midterm, very familiar sort of story, which has been of course much less true in recent times that we haven't seen, because politics has been so unstable uh, for various reasons, we've not really seen that sort of um, midterm blues kind of factor that you would generally associate with governments that have been in office really for any more than a few months after the general election that elected them. And so the commentariat's interpretation, I think, of uh, the by-election might, if anything, be running perhaps slightly behind the real reality of what by-election politics is now like. I mean, if Labour do go on to lose Hartlepool on Thursday, one imagines that the headlines will be absolutely terrible for them, despite the fact that their national opinion poll ratings are less bad than under Corbyn, that the popularity of their leader is still, you know, not bad by any means, still probably more popular Keir Starmer than Ed Miliband ever was, for example. Mm-hmm. And yep. they still, um, unfortunately, for the perspective of the Labour Party, um, might be in for a real kicking um, in the media, you know, if uh, they were to lose Harlepool, even by a very thin margin on Thursday.
1: That's absolutely right. And I think there's a basic point about the way in which by-elections are covered, uh, that uh, media sort of narratives or consensuses about such things are, are really very, very Very, very very nuanced at all. The the harsh, unforgiving measure, and in some cases the only measure at all is whether you win or you lose, regardless of those circumstances that you those sorts of circumstances you've alluded to. You know, regardless of whether you lost by fifty votes or five hundred votes or five thousand votes, um, you know, losing as as a party that's been in opposition for eleven years. Losing a seat to a government that has, you know, gone through such a period of national turmoil as we've had over the last few years uh, in a seat that is, you know, meant to be, you know, so very safe for the Labour Party. You know, it's whatever the extenuating circumstances, it's it's. um, you know, very hard to imagine a media narrative that is chauvable to, to labour. Yes, those, indeed. But. I
0: mean, Keir Starmer there is definitely de- oh, by elections often represent opportunities for oppositions. But I mean, something like Hartlepool was really just about, I think, the worst seat uh, that he could have almost chosen yeah, to face I a by to face a by election in. I, I almost might go as far as to say almost the the very worst, but perhaps in the top ten. Um, let's go on and um, then to talk about the remaining English local elections, where uh, we'll also talk a little bit about London in here as well. Um, so so in the um in the london morality uh, we have uh, mayoral politics of course not really so much conducted through the prism of, of parties uh, we have had independent candidates uh, in the shape of ken livingstone certainly um uh, winning in london before uh, but um uh, the previous um mayoral elections and um, i uh, saw uh, Sadiq khan uh returned by a a, sub- a, substan- a substantial margin um, uh, over um over, Z- over Zach over goldsmith last time um and um you know, it looks very likely from opinion polls that Khan will be elected again by a much larger margin. But then you've got the local elections in England. Now, it just bears repeating that um, this is a real conglomeration of local elections. Local elections are quite difficult to look at through the prism of national politics. We want to do that because politics in the modern world is highly nationalized. Uh, we don't really like to take into account the fact that local elections are local and get too much into the local cephalogy of the Derbyshire Dales or whatever it is. We want to draw simple national um, conclusions. Did Labour do well? Did the Conservatives well? And then, you know, did even Keir Starmer do well? Did Boris Johnson do well? When trying, to we try to reflect sort of put everything through that kind of paradigm but the last time these seats that were up for election this time were contested the first of these were in 2016 uh, which was uh, before of course the um, uh, the referendum um on um, the on european union membership um, where ukip was still riding pretty high uh, that labor finished one percentage point ahead of the conservatives in those elections under david cameron the other set which were also being elected at the same time because we didn't have local elections last year because of the pandemic occurred in 2017 also a highly atypical um group of elections because while brexit Uh, had been carried. This was in the teeth of the uh, parliamentary crisis which it created. Theresa May then being the leader of the Conservatives and Prime Minister at this point. Um, The Conservatives finishing actually 11 points ahead of Labour in those local elections which were of course very exceptionally held literally just a few weeks before the general election. This was certainly one of the things that seemed to underscore the opinion polls that were around at that time that Theresa May's gambit of going for a snap election was going to work and the Conservatives were going to achieve a crushing victory. Then something obviously very strange happened in the next few weeks, which I'm still not sure has ever been understood. Then finally, we have the local election results um, last time, which is in which is in which is in twenty which is in 2019. But in and that's obviously um, before the 2019 election, general election. So all of these different um, comparative backdrops, reference points we have for the local elections: 2016, 2017, 2019 all happened in very different political circumstances to what we have in 2021, which makes drawing an overall conclusion about the local elections quite difficult and makes it, as it always is, Mr Saleh, a question of the party's respective spin machines uh, to say whether their party uh, has actually done, you know, really, really well, given where they were.
1: Yeah, um, that's that's absolutely correct. It's very difficult to see, what meaningful, I mean, when we talk about Hartlepool, some of these concerns also pertain, but at least in, in the case of a parliamentary by-election, you have, even if it's a very crude way of looking at things, the, the unmistakable clarity of uh, an outcome in which one party, you know, someone either wins the seat or doesn't win it. And you can say that, you know, Labour held onto it, and that's great for them, or the Tories gained it, and that's great for them. Mm-hmm. Um, with local elections, you know, with, uh, 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 you know, well over 100 uh, council areas, having councillors elected, adding up to uh, many hundreds of seats up for election and many thousands of candidates, um, it's, you know, any any semblance of clarity you can got from that is very, very difficult. As you say, in normal times, um, that's to say uh, when... Uh, 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 a, a set of local elections are being held in the middle of uh, a parliament that is understood by everyone to to last for four or five years. So, in any given year of a local election, people will know whether whether you know this is in the middle of the parliament or towards the end of a parliament or the start of a parliament. Um, Uh, people can maybe begin to adjust their expectations and calibrate them vis-a-vis the national opinion polls a bit more. And that's when you see the spin machines and the media speculations preemptively putting out, uh, uh, you know, briefings saying that our party ought to be gaining, you know, net 200 seats or otherwise we would have had a bad night or, or whatever. This time, you know, One notices in the media uh, coverage of these elections uh, an unusual coyness about that kind of thing. I don't think anyone is really in the business of sticking their neck out and saying definitively that, you know, if Labour do so badly as to have a net loss of councillors across England of, you know, 200 or 100 or whatever, or, or fail to make a certain net gain, then that'll be a bad night for Keir Starmer. Um I think everyone is is to some extent aware of just how unusual the political um political situation is. Um, and that might be why um, the as obviously the Scottish elections are very important and obviously the Welsh elections are the own thing as well. Um, that might be why Hartley will do so much to determine. You know the overall sort of ambiance or the overall political kind of atmosphere that is created by these elections. I think that's because a crucial
0: point you make there, Mr. Sala, Actually, about that. I mean, I mean, sorry to butt in. I mean, this point no, about at all. You know, the the ambiance and the mood music. Because Hartlepool will have a result, and it will just be simple, and it will just be comparative. I mean, one thing that very often happens in local elections, I feel, is uh, the way in which results trickle through and the way in which the media narrative is formed generally speaking this obviously it's not the case this time that results are really going to be counted on Thursday night as they as they usually are usually what happens in local elections is the majority of results are counted on Thursday night and the media outlets will know that viewers who want to tune into the media outlets or read in the newspapers to see how have the local elections gone they need to have a headline and this will very often be Uh, determined by the sorts of results that tend to come in earlier. And sometimes I've seen parties complain that if they do perhaps more badly earlier and do a little bit better with some of the results that trickle in on Friday, media narrative doesn't really seem to get updated. And this time, the results are going to be coming in incredibly slowly. And as a consequence, I think it will be quite hard to sort of call the elections in terms of who's won and who's lost in such simple terms compared mm-hmm. to something like hartlepool where there will
1: be a clear winner and a clear loser and so I, th- hence I, think, I think that will yeah i think that's right on on the friday which is when most on friday morning and afternoon which is when most of the counting most places is going to start in earnest and you know by friday tea time we should have not not everything by any means but you know maybe up to half of the results um, that we're gonna get get in total um, you know the process of latching onto to whatever straws in the wind one can find are going to be even you know even more arbitrary uh, 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 and sort of on the fly than they than they normally are so things that you know things that sort of whose sort of symbol symbolic power suggests themselves to, a narrative hungry journalists, for example, to the top of my head, um, could include um, council areas like Durham County Council, um, which in the 2019 general election, that county was sort of kind of the epicenter of the red wall narrative with seats like Northwest Durham and Sedgefield and Bishop Auckland. Um, uh, the entire count, all of the county's councillors are up for election um, in County Durham all parts of the county will be voting. Um, And that's a place where the Tories did really well in the general election, but in 2017, uh, which I I believe when uh, uh, Durham County Council last had its election, um, the Tories really failed to make any real headway at all. So there's an enormous amount of ground potentially them to make and, and an extremely I mean just when when, it, when it'll be shown on the screen an extremely large and scary looking number of seats um, that could represent a, a Labour net loss if Labour do poorly that's the kind of place where you know if they make lots of gains in Bishop Auckland or something the Tories could really have a very kind of media friendly narrative of further advances, consolidating advances in the Red Wall but apart from those sorts of councils that might you know happen to have very sort of alluring narratives. I suppose the closest that the local elections offer to that kind of neat sort of bang for your buck, tidy narrative are the various metropolitan mayoral elections that are happening. Um, obviously London is the, the most important and the most nationally prominent one, but it's not just London. Numerous conurbations are having their mayoral elections. So you have Greater Manchester, where Andy Burnham is perhaps one of the few um, directly elected mayors outside London to um, have succeeded in sort of stamping his um, his authority on his new role. You may remember, Dr. Maxwell, that uh, uh, back in the autumn, when the government was sort of trying trying to work out its um, tiers system in terms of you know different parts of the country being under different levels of restrictions, um, uh, on behalf of his constituents. Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, kicked up quite a big fight with the government that, um, you know, was quite unusual, not something we normally see in local government versus central government relations. Um, that might be an exception, you know, a rare case of a directly elected mayor outside London really having a sort of personal impact. The West Midlands conurbation, you know, the the area in and around Birmingham, uh, that returned a conservative mayor. Uh, in the 2017 local elections, when the Tories were at their height under Theresa May, it looks as if the Tories will be re-elected for that. That will be another nice kind of item of narrative for the Conservatives to tell a story about how much they're consolidating their gains in provincial England. And also in um, the northeast of England, you have the, the Tees Valley, um, sort of an area abutting are onto and expanding from Hartlepool, which we've already discussed. Tees Valley has its own metropolitan mayor. Again, the Conservatives very unexpectedly won it in, in, in May 2017. They are looking like they'll be re-elected quite comfortably again. And again, one imagines that will be the kind of thing that'll slot very neatly into a pre-prepared media narrative.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that obviously looking at these particular candidates through the prism of parties, when you have exceptional individuals like I suppose Andy Street or, or Andy Burnham. Um, Burnham, obviously, previously an MP, I suppose, and a, and a Labour front venture. But then um, they're not. It, it, it's obviously you project political party narratives onto them, even though they are, in many respects, individuals. I suppose then, probably finally, to say something just about London. Now, in a sense, London is actually really probably about the most boring it has been politically for a very long time. London morality. Um, which is obviously was won initially by Ken Livingstone, standing as an, an independent. Um, and uh, was then won, of course, by Boris Johnson. Uh, and this was when, you know, the Conservatives were definitely behind the eight ball in London, but at the same time, they still had quite a lot of support. And then, um, you know, a com- fairly comfortable victory, you know, on the first round, calm winning 44% to Goldsmiths 30, 35% last time round. But then, of course, what you had was... Um, Very shortly afterwards, the election on exiting the European Union, where London, um, like a lot of parts of the country, almost seems to have reorientated itself into a new kind of political body clock, a new kind of political set of identities. And unlike in many parts of the country, like in Hartlepool, where this has enabled the Conservatives to reach into what was previously thought to be unconquerable ground in the capital, where the Conservatives were running behind Labour, but not by an enormous margin, it really has. Um, uh, caused the Conservatives' uh, prospects really to fall in. Um, Of course, the only gain of the 2019 election was in the constituency of Putney. Um, That was, of course, gained in a very high-profile fashion by Justin Greening in 2005. It was the only uh, Labour gain in 2019. and It looks as though um, Sadiq Khan is potentially going to win by such a margin that there is not even a second round. There are not even um, reallocations. Uh, Conservative candidate mm-hmm. Sean Bailey polling really in the mid-20s. Uh, t- you know, to, all, to all, I suppose, extents and purposes, Bailey being a bit of a scandal-ridden candidate, not particularly accomplished media performer either. Um, and it looks as though the Conservatives are really going to be cleaned up. But I, I think it's probably fair to say, though, that neither Khan nor Bailey are on the level of charisma of people like Johnson, uh, people like Ken Livingstone. And so in a sense, they are probably, both men are more barometric of their own party's overall health. I don't see a particular reason to suggest uh, yeah, oh, well, that they're running right. ahead or behind where their parties would
1: really be nationally.
0: And of course, that's no, that the Conservatives are really being trounced in London.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think that it, it is a quirk of the position of London mayor that um, it, Tends to, in the national political conversation, magnify um, its its you know its its office holder, its its sitting mayor, um, uh, in terms of prominence, media prominence, far beyond the actual tangible powers that the mayor of London actually has, which aren't really that extensive when it comes to it. Um, so, Sadiq Khan has been fairly, you know, fairly accomplished in making the most of that, that, you know, over the past five years, you know, with all sorts of things with Brexit or refugees or coronavirus, whatever, even if he doesn't have that much say over how to deal with these issues, he's often quite good at kind of inserting himself into the national conversation and speaking for London in a sort of, in a sort of unspecified way, Um uh, and, and, and so I think that it is developing a kind of incumbency bonus in a way that is a bit unusual in British politics. But generally, yeah, you're right. You have these larger than life figures of Johnson and Ken Livingston who defined the, the electoral politics of, uh, of Greater London for the first um, three or four election cycles uh, 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 of, you know, since the creation of the Greater London Authority in 2000. And since both of them departed, you've had, um, you know, four, uh, five years ago, we had Sadiq Khan versus Zach Goldsmith. Zach Goldsmith's not not an amazing candidate, but at least he as well was at least meant to have initially some kind of cachet, as a maverick, as an independent politician, and, and so on and so forth, who cared a lot about the environment. Um, but as you say, Sean Bailey, there's, there's, you know, there's not really even that. Um, uh, and so what we have in London, without any, without too much, at least on the conservative side, of the obscuring factors of, of, of big personalities, you, you have a situation in London, which of course we've seen in the last couple of general elections, where um, what for most of the post-war period um, seemed to kind of seem to be the equilibrium that kept party politics party politics in london kind of in check was a a basic balance between the strongly labor inner city boroughs and the much more conservative uh, suburban outer london boroughs um those two things were you know similarly sized enough that they could keep each other in check but in the last few years um that balance has completely become you know become completely lopsided so you have uh you know Still, you have some Tory seats in, in, in the outer suburbs in boroughs like Bromley or, or Havering, um, but they're nothing like what they were 25 or 30 years ago. You have you know you had in 2017 and 2019 Labour running very close in seats like Chipping Barnet. The um, you know by you know by any by any understanding of electoral politics up you know, say certainly 20 years ago or 30 years ago uh, would have been very 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 safe conservative um, and so you have there are lots of interesting speculations to be had here about the sort of the underlying demographics um, there's probably a lot to be said for the sort of the, the sociology of London uh, uh, making the, the sort of the, the very core of the city sort of zone one of London, Uh, uh, less and less affordable to young graduates who are of course now an ever more important part of the Labour Party coalition and those sorts of people being priced out of central London where they may be working into outer London and even perhaps beyond greater London uh, where they now commute or now work from home and so you have an ever-growing kind of outer ring around central London that is uh, uh, less and less suburban, in you know, in the sort of traditional sense of that term, but it's becoming more and more, more and more drawn to the sort of demographic patterns of central London or inner London.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that, I think that's undoubtedly, undoubtedly true. Anyway, um, I think we should probably uh, conclude matters. Uh, but thank you uh, very much, ladies and gentlemen, for um, uh, listening to uh, the thoughts of myself and Mr. Salah, and um, I can't exactly say that we're looking forward to a long election night on Thursday, because sadly, uh, there isn't such an item. But we will certainly be keeping a very keen eye on the results as they come in. Thank you for listening, and good night.